0: (music) Tobias Wolfe grew up in Washington State. He taught English and Creative Writing at Stanford. He has received the Story Prize, both the Rea Award and the Penn Malamud Award for Excellence in the Short Story, the Los Angeles Times Book Award, the Penn Faulkner Award, and the National Medal of the Arts from President Obama in 2015. He is the author of the memoir, This Boy's Life. His novels and short story collections include Old School, The Barracks Thief, In Pharaoh's Army, In the Garden of the North American Martyrs, Back in the World, and The Night in Question.
1: In a number of your stories, like Hunters in the Snow, The Night in Question, your novels, the characters face a moral decision, and I feel like the tension seems to come from watching how the character will act. Can you talk a little about the morality in your fiction?
2: Well, we're all making decisions all the time, and in the process of those decisions, a lot of them not quite at that moment clear to us as which is the good and which is the bad decision, right and wrong. We're kind of navigating a little bit in the fog all the time when we make these decisions, but the sum of those decisions as we go on is who we are. So I'm very interested in that process by which people create themselves by this constant act of deciding and doing this thing rather than another thing. And I don't start off to create a moral in telling a story, but the Consequences to the decisions that we make and some of those will no doubt have what we would call a moral dimension to them. But I don't, I, I don't respond very warmly to, or enthusiastically, I guess, to fiction that I can see the thumb on the scales and it's kind of a sermon in disguise, if you will. I'm more interested in writing that explores rather than proclaims, if that makes sense.
1: Sure. Yeah, your fiction is not at all moralizing, but it's just you. You choose. I think what makes them, you know, real for me is this: you choose like a high-stakes situation, and and as you say, you let it play out. I mean, that's not all on the. It's not moralizing at all. I, I would think it's even the reverse of moralizing in showing mistakes. It's interesting for readers. I mean, it well, draws sure me. To
2: make mistakes. Totally. <laughs> yes
1: yeah and i and just to ask interesting questions like in the night in question, it seems like you're asking you know how do you how do you help the people you love without destroying yourself and, and that's so interesting to me, you know because these are the the real conflicts that we have that seems like in in some of the stories like in old school as well, is just sort of picking up from questions or situations you posed in in your memoir this boy's life. It's like you're asking yourself, you know, why do we, as you say, make mistakes, why do we seek out our own self-destruction? I'm not sure that we seek out our own destruction, but Mm -hmm. we are sometimes drawn to things that are,
2: you know, are bad for us, have bad consequences for us. There's no question about it, often, in in some funny way, that will be a motive that at the You mentioned old school. In an odd way, the story that the boy in in that novel tells that gets him into so much trouble that is actually
1: And that's what's interesting. It seems it's something I see in uh, the stories and in the fiction is this kind of mirror. You have a, a reflection, as you say, the imagined and the real. And, you know, when we dream, are we not our real selves as well? That it's your worst self sometimes or, or your better self when you when you tell a story about yourself. It's, it's not the exact representation. So... Yeah.
2: I think in those acts of retelling and telling, we are not always entirely in control of the reasons that we're doing, that that we're giving our memories the shape we're giving them. William Gass has an essay that was in Harper's several Mm -hmm. years
1: ago called, what was it called? Oh, geez. Is this a quiz? I failed it. I didn't read it. I'm sorry no I didn't I didn't see it oh okay.
2: no no you don't need to read it it's called Autobiography in the Age of Narcissism and oh, okay and says that the memoir is a corrupt form because writers of memoir will inevitably paint themselves pretty their own portrait and you know it's a kind of dishonest branch of history and actually the, mem- the memoirs that I love I don't see any particular impulse for the writer to pretty themselves up at all. If I think of, say, Frank Conroy's Stop Time, uh, right, yeah. uh, My Own Brother's Duke mm-hmm. of Deception, and Mary McCarthy's Memories of the Catholic Girlhood, those are some of my favorite yeah, mem- yeah. memoirs. And and they, those writers, I think, are quite truthful in their representations of themselves. And, you know, and if anything, maybe sometimes a little harder on themselves than others would have been. But, you know, then there are obviously memoirs who go the other way, like Lillian Hellman, who, you know, Mary McCarthy was absolutely right about her. She couldn't tell the truth to save her soul. And every story, she's the heroine. She's the one who keeps her head when everyone around them is losing theirs and mm-hmm. who's the only one with integrity in any given moment. And, you know, you weary of that sort of thing.
1: Which and it becomes more, if you pick through it, it becomes revealing in its own weird way.
2: That must have been the sort of memoir that Gass had in mind when he wrote his essay. But really, I, I, I don't see it in, in the best, you know, that wonderful memoir, which got so beaten up and I felt was so good. Harrison's A Kiss, you know, she does not absolve herself of complicity in the events that she's describing. And the best memoirs don't. They see themselves
1: I think have said about your fiction and your memoirs. Your memoir has all the literary qualities. The characterization, I think, is being blurred and and increasingly so. I think you began, or in in some ways, you started a a certain trend towards a literary memoir and the acceptance of that. But just to say this is a memoir and this is fiction, I don't know, you just take it as a work. And we, we all know that we have imperfect memories. And And the same can be said for you know there there's dishonest fiction that's just not written as though uh, it's not written from a point of vulnerability or or truthfulness so yeah that's, i I agree that's right there's dishonest fiction as as well as dishonest
2: memoirs I do think that the whole question of the honor of of the memoir has to do with very much with the intention of the of the writer. I think the writer of the memoir really has to be committed to telling, you know, the truth that that person's memory tells them without evasion and dodging and trying to weasel out of the difficult stuff and letting yourself be seen as something that you really are, something perhaps a little less than heroic. And yes, your memory will be definitely in tension with other people's memories. No one. You know, no one has a computer chip in their brain that gets this stuff down perfectly. And even the computer chip wouldn't work because it would be missing the context and the look Mm -hmm. on another person's face as you're going through an experience with them, their body language, you know, the weather, the the heat that makes you irritable that day, all Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And that memory actually can
1: supply, even if in an oblique way. I really uh, I like the details in your memoirs. So though, I, I did feel this experience. Just I don't know. I just, it was just it was just interesting, for me. I I grew up in Seattle too, so it's kind of strange, and uh, it's not the same time period. But I could relate to those places. And so anyway, speaking about youth and young people, we were talking before about self-destruction or just doing kind of crazy things. You know, when people are young. And you, I read the memoir, so you can't hide it. You did some crazy, fearless things. Why do you think, what what drew you to those things, and who do you credit with getting you back on track? Well, part of it is just getting older, you know. Criminals in prison, Mm -hmm. the recidivism rate for criminals, when they're released, goes
2: drastically down as they Mm -hmm. get older. Part of it, you know... This is, where, where is this going right hard yeah. to get a grip and so partly that was it but I also I was very lucky and I have really good friends all the, mm-hmm. when I was growing up there's some of them are still I had a, the honor a couple of weeks ago of getting a national medal for the arts. yes
1: It reminds me of your story, A Bullet in the Brain. If that seems to be like, I don't know, I'm psychoanalyzing, but it, it was like, as you said, you're given a second chance. And as I was reading that, and it's very well drawn, and it's so compressed because it's like a whole life. And I, I thought, I thought of the young man, and I know from reading this boy's life, and then I thought of the critic. And I thought, maybe these are two extreme or exaggerated possible routes your life could have taken. I don't know. And, um.
2: that who did you have in mind actually who I had in mind was myself and because you know there are certain ways in which I think like that guy and you know I tend
1: to hopefully not at those moments
2: <laughs> hopefully not yes exactly but that's exactly right he's like another part of my nature you know if I went down that road far enough where
1: would I be right Yeah, or I think all writers or artists, you know, they can become so involved in the creative process, they forget, oh, this is, life itself is right in front of you, you know. That's right. That's right.
2: I remember reading a poem, years and years ago, I can't remember where, it was a poem, it may have been by Donald Mm Hall, and it was like a poem that was a letter of advice to a young poet, and it said, you know, when you go to a family dinner, don't be thinking about writing about the funny things that your cranky uncle said, turning him into a character. Enjoy the dinner. When you go to your great-aunt Polly's funeral, don't be making a mental note to use the funny hat that, that her sister's wearing at the funeral in the thing you're working on. Be there. Be present there. And I thought, well, that's fantastic.
1: So we, we, we can't
2: really not do
1: that. You can't turn it off. We are yeah.
2: helplessly, I don't know, we're helplessly changing experience as we go.
1: Preserving it. That, yeah. Coming to the end, the whole time because that story just really gripped me. It's one of my favorite of yours, and even, and I don't know why because it was written right there in the the title, the first sentence. He has a bullet in the brain, but part of me was hoping, uh, right to the end, I, that bullet would pass through and he'd get his second chance with all his new realizations. And I just, <laughs> I don't know why. That's but it's it's a quality. You know, you have a a, a literary quality with your fiction at the same time it's You still, you haven't let go of that um, seat-of-the-pants quality that I still don't know. Anyway, that's one of my favorite ones, so just putting that in. So I guess we were talking about ourselves, our imagined selves, and this was something that occurred to me, although maybe we've talked about it a bit much now, but when I think of the greatest artists, the ones I really admire, they often have, not, not to discuss it, because we do things in our, in our childhood or when we we're young, we do things that are fearless. But the ones I admire, like Caravaggio or Maya Angelou, Oscar Wilde, or Francis Bacon, they they had this element that they could draw on. You know, it was illegal or they just did something to get by. And I was wondering, are you grateful for the material that that early part of your life gave you? Yes, absolutely. I'm not terribly prone to regret I re- mm-hmm.
2: That ha- has happened sure, in my yeah. life and and i'm sorry for that but i can't say i regret it because i would do the same it, it i guess basically if you're talking about regret would mm-hmm.
0: you do the same thing in the same situation mm-hmm. there are some things that i would not do in the same situation that were hurtful mm-hmm.
2: but by and large i wish i'd been a better son to my mother and mm-hmm. and all that but at the same time it was still you know that was the life i left and, and if i had not let it in the way i did
1: Maybe maybe it's a silly question to ask. No, it wasn't actually even regrets. I was just thinking, you know, if, as I said, you know, I've known like all sorts of people and the more interesting, what I'm saying is the more interesting ones, you know, they actually have a past because now maybe you see them coming, students coming through your creative writing program and they might not have as much experience or, you know, they didn't go off to Vietnam, they weren't tested in that way. And I'm wondering, you know, if you can imagine, like, what would your fiction be like if you didn't have these things that happened? To you? That's what I mean. It's like, are you grateful for it in that way? You know, now that you've come through it, of course. Well,
2: I can think of, you know, I can think of a number of writers who, you know, wrote really wonderful fiction <laughs> who didn't have that kind of, if you will, somewhat tumultuous and, Occasionally violent history. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have no question at all that all that stuff is in the well I, I draw my work from. But imagination is something we have to give more credit to.
1: And, yeah, you know, no, I of course.
2: Of, yeah. I think of somebody like Ian McEwen, who's a writer I really love. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think Ian has been pretty much steadily writing since his late teens, early 20s. And and that's been his life, and he's traveled here and there and that kind of thing, but his imagination has taken him into extraordinary places. His book atonement, his description oh, yeah. of, you know, the the British retreat mm-hmm. from France, and the whole, you know, evacuation of Dunkirk is just amazing, and, you know, I mean, even Hemingway, mm-hmm. who we think of it as a, kind of a model of the experienced writer who draws on his experience. A lot of the stuff in Say a Farewell to Arms, he did not actually experience. He heard about it. He, he imagined it, the retreat from Caporetto, which I think Ian learned a lot from in writing his book, Atonement, was something he imagined. Stephen Crane, how old was he when he wrote Red Batch of Curse? He was like 21, he hadn't fought in well, the Civil yeah. War. But he met imag- and he certainly veterans of the Civil War, talk to the older men, but to imagine himself into the skin of a young Union soldier in the Civil War, and, 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 and the confusion of that, you know, I, I'm referring specifically
1: to these kinds of experiences, because you mentioned Vietnam, but yeah. i Oh, yeah. No, I know. I, I imagine there's there's lots of things, of course, that are imagined. And it's a, it's the sitting at the desk. It's it's like anything. It's like an actor. He's imagining himself into the role. He doesn't have to uh, experience it. But I think it, it does, in your case, and in many writers, do, having that, it just makes it a little more real. Yeah. I mean, little, even just little details, not necessarily the most... You know, sometimes it's the small detail. I'm thinking of that story, um, Firelight, and this isn't war. So this, I guess, um, a young man and his son and his mother going out and shopping for things they can afford. Well, you know what it is. I'm not telling you. But those... Yeah, sorry, excuse me. I'm summarizing your own story, too. But those little things that comes from experience, meaning some hardship, you know, it's not completely imagined. It comes across, so... So, yes, but you did have this varied life, so it's good. So we benefit from it, <laughs> and we, we don't have to necessarily have them. Of all the, and I guess you traveled, you were, you were at Oxford for a while, you worked on ships. Of all the odd jobs you had, what was the, your favorite non-writing odd job?
2: My favorite non-writing odd job, gosh, that's a really good...
1: Writing is an odd job, but <laughs> non-writing... Yes, yes.
2: Well, one of the odd jobs I had
1: after I lost my scholarship in right, yeah. the boarding school and ended up, I was living
2: in D.C. for a little while and wow. before I joined the Army. And I had a job as a kind of night watchman in St. John's Episcopal Church, which is the one across the street from the White House. Wow. And the rectory had a fantastic library. I mean, full of really wonderful fiction and history, biography. The rector, and obviously some of the rectors, because it's a very old church, had had collected these books over the years. And so really my job was to sit there from about five o'clock in the afternoon when the rector went home, he didn't actually live in the rectory, to, you know, midnight when somebody else came in. And I just, I just sat in the library, a very nicely appointed library, and read, so, you know, among the jobs I had when I was quite young, that was certainly my favorite, but, you know, I've had a lot of jobs over the years, and some of the ones, I I was a reporter at the Washington Post during Watergate, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. It's not an odd job, but it's a job, and, and yeah, I, I was there for several months.
1: But to By be there uh, is interesting, yeah, so good.
0: Hi, I'm Riley Andrews, a journalism student at DePaul University. I was comforted by Tobias' reflection on his decision to leave journalism to pursue a different writing path. I started my academic career at DePaul as an English major with a focus in creative writing. I wanted to study creative nonfiction because I'd been inspired by books written by my favorite authors and journalists who could write about real life in a way I'd never seen. Another main inspiration for me is my grandfather, who has told me remarkable stories about his life and travels out west and around the world. So I pursued creative nonfiction because I was hoping to learn methods to telling my stories in captivating ways. But I made the switch to journalism earlier this year when I realized I wanted to tell other people's stories more than I wanted to tell my own. And from a journalism perspective, I find Tobias' comments about the truth of a memoir to be really interesting. As he says, reality is subjective and the visions we have of it can shift over time. And that presents a lot of challenges when interviewing eyewitnesses of the scene trying to gather all the facts for a news story. Again, like Tobias says, no one's mind is a microchip that can be expected to remember everything with extreme accuracy. And even if they could, there's so many outside factors that no one would think to report on. I do believe that modern technological advancements may aid with these issues on reporting news now that everyone has video cameras in their pockets at all times. However, I can't help but wonder if the subjectivity of reality is important sometimes. Sure, in a news story about a crime or a tragedy, it's essential to answer all the questions who, what, when, where, why, and how, with as much objectivity and accuracy as possible. But what about those stories that reflect on someone's life, that are more of a biographical profile than news. I believe that storytellers have an obligation to tell the truth to their audience, but in a lot of cases the subjectivity of the truth matters. It can provide its own insight on the storyteller that may be missing in the facts. My personal example of this, though he may not be a celebrity that you do a profile on, comes from my grandfather. My grandpa's stories that I heard growing up were true events that happened to him. He's survived a rattlesnake bite, he's encountered mountain lions. The stories were endless, and I wanted to listen to them on the loop growing up. My other family members will still follow up these stories with the saying, he never lets the truth get in the way of a good story. But to Tobias's point, even though the details in my grandpa's stories may be exaggerated, I think there's a certain amount of insight into his life from those possible exaggerations that I've come to respect. Even if he may come out looking like the hero every time, I think as a grandfather, that's probably okay. I hope someday, like Tobias has, to find a story that provides this insight into the realities and personalities of life. Whether I find that opportunity in journalism or in fiction, I think the beauty of a story is the connections it can build between the author and the readers, and the reflection it provides for the audience on their own realities.
1: I can imagine the the adrenaline. And now I'm, I'm just wondering, because I've forgotten, and just reading your list of odd jobs and you your travels, that, do you think that working as a journalist led you towards, it, it seems like you know you favor the short story, though you've written longer works, but... No, no, it wouldn't have been, no, it wasn't, that didn't have anything to do with the journalism. No, I, it was funny, I just started reading,
2: I hadn't read a short story since I was like in high school, which is, you know, it was always required reading, and they were often stories I really didn't care that much. I liked Hemingway's stories, but I, you know, we were reading Hawthorne short stories, which really are kind of hard for high school kids to read, and I find them pretty, with a few exceptions, I find them pretty rough sliding now, too. Yeah. Like with
1: Sure. Short story. I don't understand. Some people say they can't get into short stories. And when you talk about the great forms and what you studied at Oxford, it seems like it, it is the, the the place between uh, poetry and fiction. You know, it's not incomprehensible to the w- poetry can be incomprehensible to some people. Now I, I can understand it's an, it's kind of formal, but it's just I don't know. It's it. I think to me, it's the way we tell stories to those around us. It's to me, it's the most understandable medium. But I. Some people just read novels. I don't know why.
2: Yeah, I think it maybe has something to do you know, that One of the things that, that I enjoy in the short story is it's an art of implication. You don't mm. tell everything in a short story. You test the reader's willingness. You invite the reader to participate with you in deciphering a life and seeing where it might go from this moment. life as you might do in a novel. And I think most readers actually prefer to have you tell them where, how, how to think about everything and how it all ends and to have the whole arc of the thing there. And also, let's admit it, there's a great pleasure in returning to the same book day after day and watching these lives, you know, complicate and unravel and unfold in time. So I love the novel.
1: because film is the you know the dominant popular medium and it seems to me they're just like uh relatives
2: the short story and the
1: and uh, film and, and
2: the film you mean
1: i mean they're not the equivalent but if you're to translate it into a, a visual medium that you know that's compression and that's editing and the, the well I, I would
2: have agreed with you like
1: So oh, that's oh, true. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, it's very hard to make pronouncements. I don't have TV, so I guess I, I still th- we still have movie houses in Paris. There's loads of them. <laughs> oh, that's yes. wonderful I love movies. So I go to the movies. I have one of those passes. I go often. So now we're talking about movies. I was wondering what was it like to see the adaptation of This Boy's Life, and what did you think of the portrayals? And was you know what were your reactions? Well, it
2: was it was definitely. I, I mean I they changed so many things that I mean I knew that would happen because you know a book is not a movie and you have to change things in order to make it dramatic and and make it into a film I had a little bit of a hard time with some of it because it was if it had been a novel I would have thought I would have just shrugged it all off and said you had to do what you want I made it up you make up some stuff too but with a memoir that happened in there, and these were people who actually existed and places that were real. And when they started fooling around with that, I felt a certain possessiveness, I guess is the word, and felt like certain things were being violated that shouldn't be. And so it was an uncomfortable experience for me finally to watch the movie, I have to admit. The acting was terrific. It was Leonardo's, DiCaprio's first movie. and he did a wonderful job, and you know, I mean, it was it was handsomely filmed. It had good music. I'm probably the last person to have who should have an opinion about the movie because it's just too close to me, you know.
1: Yes, no, I thought it was a successful. I mean, I read this. one. I know I finished reading This Boy's Life again, but they're different completely, and a lot of things. But it was a successful film in terms of if you just considered it on its own so but it must be strange to see people it's your life and it's up there it is and what's you know particularly strange is to yes it's your life but it isn't either it's so altered
2: and I mean it got so distant really that I'd forget that you know when I was watching it for the first time you know I'd almost forget that this was actually about my life and Unseen, I think, and I'd almost think, like, well, that reminds me of something that happen to me.
1: That's uh, funny. I think I saw the movie years ago, so I don't. Know, I remember, but I remember there. Then rereading the memoir, just a lot of things were taken out. So that's just strange. I grew up
2: in Washington State partly, and and where did you go to school in Seattle? I went. Did you oh, go to grammar school.
1: Um, grammar school. I'm trying to remember now all the different uh, different names of them because I don't live in America, so I'm really forgetting. <laughs> I can never write a memoir. You see, I have a, a painter's memory. I went Official to you no know, for high school I went to that Jesuit school I can't remember and then I went uh-huh. to an alternative school but then I came to Paris and I went to see we moved around a lot because my mom's in New York too you know she would be she wasn't with us all the time so
2: uh-huh.
1: anyway you're ta- like you had an interesting <laughs> upbringing well I don't know I don't know I came to Paris I took the path that maybe you would have taken you would have ended up a painter and, uh, but we wouldn't have the Tobias Wolf we you know, so... <laughs> we wouldn't... We, uh, well, how do we say it? I'm trying to make a pun. Uh, well, but we'll always have Tobias Wolf. We'll always have Paris or... Like, I don't know. Anyway, I can't remember what we were saying, but... Uh, oh, teaching. Okay. I'm also a teacher too, but I'm taking a bit of sabbatical to do this project. How do you think teaching has influenced your writing? I have no idea,
2: Mia, because... I don't know what my writing would have been like if I hadn't been teaching. It, it, it wasn't something I intended to do. I kind of fell into it. I took a job just kind of temporarily as a high school teacher in San Francisco uh, when I got tired of waiting on tables, and ended up doing that for a couple of years. Then I got this fellowship to Stanford just to come and write for a year, and then they offered me a lectureship at the. I didn't have a graduate degree. I didn't anticipate that I would be a university teacher or. I, didn't, I wasn't really looking forward to going back to high school teaching. I was thinking about what else I might do. Anyway, they offered me a lectureship here, a uh, three-year lectureship. And and I thought, oh, okay, I'll try that. And I really liked it. I really enjoyed it. And so while I was teaching as a lecturer at
1: I'm just wondering, yeah, if you ever work out, you know, little kinks in the fiction or you some, I mean, I don't know. Be no, probably not. I yeah. mean, I don't So I'm just wondering, did you actually write a bullet in the brain at a low point? You know, as you said, the paralyzing. It was like a metaphor made visible.
2: No, yeah, no. yeah, I see what you mean. No, no, no. That, that, I mean, you know, I certainly always feel the possibility of drying sure. up and, you know, becoming jaundiced in my mm-hmm. view of things. And, you know, that's there always.
1: It's a risk with any, with any job. But you definitely, you've inspired a, a, a lot of, you know, I think really really good writers um, and I, I interviewed George Saunders so and he credited you with I mean I know editing is big w- in, in your process and revising and he, he talked a lot about that and also said that you taught him a lot about teaching so oh, good and and I guess Jay I don't know all the list of your students Jay McInerney and others so it must feel gratifying to have to help certain I authors on the way. So, but what elements, I'm just wondering, what elements of writing do you think can be taught?
2: Well, I I think what you do is you make, you can help people become really good editors of their own work. That's probably the greatest gift you can give them is to help them become more aware of what they're doing and what they're not doing. And then they can choose not to do that, but if they're not doing it because they haven't realized they weren't doing it, you can help them become more aware
1: just looking over old school you know that book it straddles a different liter i don't know i feel it straddles a different literary tone than uh, some of your other stories because there's this literary i don't know if i thought
2: it's more about the vocation of writing than anything else i've written
1: yeah and it's also funny i mean i'm thinking now that a poem uh written by the student in the style of uh, frost
2: yes i'm glad you found it funny i it amused me to write. I have to say a lot of that. And I had a lot of fun writing that book. I really did.
1: Yeah. No, I think it's good. I think it becomes a good introduction I, to students. If you know, if they haven't read these works or if they have, there's these in jokes and these l- l- different levels of meaning, but it's it's a nice as you say, you know, and you can prescribe people fiction that maybe they won't absorb immediately, but you can read it on two levels, I think and as a a young reader who's not familiar with all those things, all those books, and also come back to it at another level. I, I think it works. It's humorous both ways. Good. So let's see. When I'm reading your memoirs, novels, and stories, I notice, or it seems to me that your novels cleave closer to actual events in your life, and then the stories seem to veer off more. I don't know. Like you're more free to... I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that.
2: be the case you're inventing more characters as you know as you write more stories you can't just use the same characters all the time or the same situations the novels really though in some ways aren't inf- certainly inflected by my experience they're novels I mean they're not memoirs I, I felt free to in- invent and I did invent a lot Yeah.
1: I definitely see it as that. I just, I don't know, it's just maybe an, an extended narrat- uh, narrative. I know maybe I would feel the same way. If I was writing an extended narrative, I would want to, um, you know, write about a place I knew. But, you know, in a short story, I could set it or something and, you know, do a little right. bit of research. That's right. yeah. You
2: can get away with a more of a glimpse than- yeah.
1: Now I don't know how many questions I've left I want to ask. I, you know, I'm Irish. I could go on and on forever. But <laughs> let's see. We talked about some stories being a story within a story. It seemed, I like I like that, the elements in many of your fictions. Should we talk about, let's see. Okay, if I may ask you about some of your influences and inspirations, what you teach when you're teaching literature, You know, who are particular stories, um, your influences, yeah.
2: Well, I, you know, I obviously give a lot of credit to Hemingway for getting me very excited about reading, and and also certain of his values having to do with honesty and clarity. You know, so talking about the way you really felt at a given moment, not the way you would later on wish you'd felt or want to make people think you felt. Those sorts of values and his the exactitude of his writing, the clarity.
1: Great works. Not Ayn Rand. No, not Ayn Rand. She seems to be missing. Go ahead, sir. There hadn't been that much discussion of her before I published Old School, but not because I published
2: Old School, but just coincidentally. Now she's very much, you know, Glenn Beck started pushing her on TV. You mean
1: you unleashed that on us? What's that? You mean you're responsible for Glenn Beck? (laughs) What I'm saying is that it's
2: just coincidence. I said I'm not
1: responsible. I know. Know that. Sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's very much in the kind of conversation, probably
1: because of Rand Paul, the right, right. president, and sure. is that she herself was a, a bit of an imposter. I'm thinking now in old school. Did, did you know, I don't know if this is true, but I read that actually in real life, she although she had this ruthless vision of society, effectively supported her husband and then in later life, she actually lived off the state and they had them pay for her health care.
2: That's true. Those things are both true.
1: Yeah. I, d- I didn't know she that. I thought that's su- amazing. She always
2: supported her husband. He'd been a kind of bit actor in movies. hypocrite she claimed that she had never had anybody help her that everything that she had ever done she'd done entirely by herself and if you actually read her biography she was helped along all along the way by relatives and friends and that sort of thing until she got lucky and she was also very hard working and she wasn't stupid but she was a little crazy and got away with it to an unbelievable degree she claimed honestly that she had never made a mistake in her life And I mean, (laughs) I love it. I love that. You know, it's like Donald Trump saying the other day that he couldn't think of anything that he would need to be forgiven for. And (laughs) that implies they're rather alike, actually.
1: Yeah, that must be why (laughs) she's. Sure. I didn't mean for it to be about Ayn Rand, but she is a bit like, she has a bit of the Trump about her. She just dominates any discussion. But no. it's funny, you know, <laughs> when
2: my book came out in yeah. Europe, old school.
1: That must be also the appeal to young people as well, you know, when they're trying to... Exactly, you have to be, you have, well, I mean, some people stay young their whole lives in the wrong way, but, but yes, exactly. It's an immature kind of mind and spirit that that stuff appeals to.
2: Yeah. And a a selfish, you know, the selfishness of youth as well.
0: The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Moschowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Riley Andrews. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at